Now we're going to um, turn in our Bibles to Genesis. We're turning to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Let's hear the word of God. The words will also come up on screen. Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. Have your Bible there. Turn to the place. Follow the reading. Let's hear the word of God. Genesis 18, verse 16. And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord, and Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, If I find there Forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he said unto him yet again, and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall thirty be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. And Abraham returned unto his place. 
Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now, my text tonight is found in Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. It reads as follows, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. Now my theme tonight I've entitled The Wicked Sin of Sexual Immorality or Perversion. Now this is the fifth sermon in a very short series of messages that I have called God's Word to Our Nation. So God's Word to Our Nation has been the umbrella term. And previously I have preached four sermons on this theme that have been recorded and they're now, of course, available on the church website and the YouTube channel. I would encourage you to listen to them again, share them with your family and friends, and let's endeavor to propagate the word of God. Not that I'm looking for a hearing for myself, but I certainly want the word of God to be heard because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, in past sermons, I've told you that I borrowed an illustration from a Reformed Baptist pastor in the United States of America where he likened the nation's sins to a great mountain range. That illustration struck me. You've got to think of the Rockies. Think of the Himalayas. You've got the foothills. Then you've got the uh, rising peaks, the spine of the mountain. And then you've got the ultimate high peaks that rise up and stand out almost like the spire on a church building. And you can see the spire of a church building in a distance. And this pastor likened these high peaks to the very grossest and most serious sins of our nation. Sins that grievously affect the nation. Sins that are uh, the uh, affront to Almighty God. Sins that are a reproach to our nation. Remember the first sermon, Proverbs 14, verse 34. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So we have right to ask, if sin is a reproach to any nation, what sort of sins is in the heart and mind of Solomon as he uttered those words, given that he was the wisest of men apart from the Lord Jesus? And I've already given you an indication that he was thinking of the sin of a national apostasy. A, a forsaking and forgetting of God among the princes in the land, among the pastors in the pulpit, a, a, among the, the priests among the people, a, a, among the people themselves. And not only a forsaking and a forgetting of God, but a turning to empty cisterns that do not satisfy. And that's one of the grossest uh, uh, sins, the most serious sins of our day and generation. In our time, we're witnessing the sin of a national apostasy when there's a whole seal turning away from God. We added then another sin to that, the sin of shedding innocent blood. 
Sadly, the land of Israel, like the land of the United Kingdom, we could add in the land of the United States of America and other Western countries, and we have to testify that these lands and many other lands are soaked with the blood of the innocent. And you only have to think of the blood of the unborn children. You have to think of the blood of every martyr from, from Abel to uh, our time and beyond. You have to think of the blood of all who are innocently murdered in cold blood. We'll add into that the evil of euthanasia where, where the blood and the life of the elderly is taken. And I pointed out to you two weeks ago that because of the shedding of innocent blood, the land is defiled. And the blood of the innocent then cries to God for judgment and for the punishment of the evildoer. And that's another gross, wicked, serious sin. But there's a third gross, wicked, vile sin that cries out to God. Namely, the wicked sin of sexual perversion. Now, the UK as a nation, our country, is not only guilty of a national apostasy tonight, where its princes on the throne, its pastors by and large in mainline denominational pulpits, and its people have given themselves to a wholesale forsaking and forgetting of God. And our land is not only guilty of the shedding of innocent blood that cries to God, but our land is also guilty of an unashamed abandonment to all forms of sexual infidelity and perversion. And that's what we want to think about tonight. And as you listen to this, I, I covet your prayers because this is not an easy message for me to preach. And I want to tell you, it's not be an easy message for you to listen to. Because I'm going to say some unpalatable things that maybe will get under your skin and maybe rile you. But before you condemn me, cry to God and thank God that there's someone going to tell you the truth as it's revealed in the scriptures in Christ's name. So I have four little thoughts tonight. I want you to think of the reality of sexual immorality. You see, there can be no doubt that there's been a, a rapid decline to a reckless abandonment of people who champion every kind of sexual sin. If you think of the media, Sky News, the BBC, add in the entertainment industry, they use every means to destigmatize every kind of sin, especially sexual sin. And you must confess with me that we do live in an age of unrestrained, unashamed bias to sexual perversion. See, the mindset of the people is this. If there's a God, if there's a God, and many are atheistic and agnostic, Many do not believe in God, or many say in their heart there probably is no God, but if there's a God, this is what they say and think. If that God takes notice of the affairs of men, 
then surely that God has bigger stuff to take care of, bigger stuff to think about than what goes on in people's bedrooms or motel rooms. Now, the answer is a blatant falsehood. Because I ask tonight, is this correct? And the answer is absolutely not. It's not true. Because God does take notice. If you, for example, turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14, we'll come back to this. Here's the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. If you also turn there to Genesis chapter 18, to the passage we read, look at verse 20. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. So I want you to think tonight of any nation, including our own, any city, any region where there's a large-scale segment of the population of these places abandon themselves shamefully to sensuality and all forms of sexual immorality and infidelity, then that nation and that city and that region is exposing itself to the frightening judgment of Almighty God. And here's proof tonight, if proof were needed. Genesis 18, verses 20 and 21. God was affected by a cry that reached into his ears. A cry that was an affront to him. And here's the context. Three men visit Abraham. Two of them are angels. One is the Lord Jesus himself in a pre-incarnate appearance. Here's the Lord himself. Here's Jehovah in visible form. He received the worship of Abraham. He, he speaks in the first person. He, he's recorded as the Lord by Moses. And it's in capital letters. For example, if you look with me there at verse 20. And the Lord said. There's capital letters. Jehovah. The God of the covenant. The Lord is speaking to Abraham. And what does he say? He tells him that the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Why? Because their sin, and I want you to underline the words, their sin is very grievous in verse 21. And then he adds this, I will go down now and see whether they've done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. In other words, I'm going to visit the place. I'm going to go down there to Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to see what's going on. I'm going to know for myself. The two angels depart. They go on a reconnaissance sort of exercise to see and observe what's going on in Sodom. And uh, the Lord lingers a bit, stays on to talk with Abraham. He says, if you look at verse 22, And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Here the Lord informs Abraham that a cry has reached into his ear. It was a cry that brought him down from heaven in the first place. 
It was a cry that was going to take him on towards Sodom to see if that a cry accords with the reality of what's going on down there. Now, it's true the Lord is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-seeing, and he already knows and sees all things. And I believe this was for our benefit and for our enlightenment. So I want you to get this picture now. There's a cry from the cities of plea and come into the ears of the God of heaven. In other words, the, the immoral, perverted lifestyle in Sodom was crying out to God. And that cry came into the very throne room of God. And that cry came into the ears of Jehovah himself. And that cry brought Jehovah from heaven to earth. And he came to establish the facts. So here's the Lord's visible presence. And what does Abraham call him? Abraham calls him there. Verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He's holy, he's true, and he's righteous. If we were to read on into chapter 19, we discover in verse 1, and there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. You see, these two angels came to the city to see if it was every bit as bad as the cry went up. When they entered the city, Lot was sitting in the gate. Why was he sitting in the gate? I thought he was there for judgment, and that may have been the case. But I think also he was watching for the stranger. Remember, he's a saved man who's vexing his righteous soul with their lifestyle and their conversation from day to day, according to Peter. And he urges these two men not to abide in the street at night. He offers them a bed. He offers them food. And before the two men lay down, the city of, uh, uh, is surrounded uh, as far as Lot's house is concerned. And the inhabitants of the city demanded Lot to bring out the two men. Look at 19 verse 5. Genesis 19 verse 5. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the two men which come into thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. Now I want you to think of that word know here. It has to do with intimate physical carnal knowledge. You've got to think of the perversity of this. The Lord said to Abraham, the sin is very grievous. Lot pleaded with them. In verse 7, I pray you brethren, do not so wickedly. And not only the perversity here, but the pervasiveness of this. It was young and old alike. It was all the people from every quarter. That's what the Bible tells us in verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And what did they want? They wanted to know them. If you think of verse 5, that we may know them. Nothing to do with a social introduction. Nothing to do with offering hospitality, nothing to do with befriending them. They literally desired an illicit, illegitimate, abominable homosexual practice with them. The context is important. You know the story. Lot offered his two virgin daughters to them. They rejected that. Their passion was inflamed. They were... Bearing and burning in a resolute, determined desire. Um, 
They, they refused the two young girls. They banged in the door. They were going to abuse Lot. They would be doing worse to him. They were threatening to be violent and nasty. They, they could have murdered Lot. They were so intent on their evil. The two angels pulled them in. They struck the company with blindness. And yet the company continued to search for the door. And what was Lot told? If you look with me at 19 verse 12. And the man said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters? And whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord have sent us to destroy it. Look at verse 24, Genesis 19, verse 24 now. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. There's evidence of the Lord's righteous anger against this sin. This sin that cried out to heaven itself for judgment. Now I want you to answer this question. What was the gross sin of Sodom? You see, there are some tonight among the liberal and modernistic preachers whom we absolutely reject. They're not true preachers of the gospel. Individuals, even in the pulpits of the land, who support the LGBT people, they try to use very clever manipulation. Because they argue, now wait a minute, it wasn't a sin of homosexuality. It was not the sin of abandonment to sexual perversion. It was a different sin, a sin of pride, a sin of fullness of bread, a sin of being inhospitable. And they, they point you to a scripture. Turn over there to Ezekiel chapter 16 and look with me at the verse 48. Ezekiel 16, 48. As I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done she nor her daughters, as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, an abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw Good. Notice the words, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. I asked you what was the crowning sin of Sodom. And even though they were guilty of pride and fullness of bread, materialism had taken over, guilty of being inhospitable and unloving toward one another, the chief crowning sin of Sodom was this terrible sin of homosexuality. Now you're going to ask me, how do you know that? And I'm going to answer. Let the Bible speak. You see, we believe in letting the Bible speak. And let the scriptures interpret the scriptures. Turn over there to the book of Job. Sorry, Jude. Jude's epistle. We'll read it, verse 7. It says in Jude 7, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. There's the two sins, fornication 
and going after strange flesh. Here's what caused Almighty God to come from heaven, having heard this cry that has come into his ears, and to come to earth, and to go to the edge of Sodom, and witness this um, sinful perversion before his face. This is what caused Almighty God to rain fire and brimstone on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the wicked sin of sexual perversion regarding homosexuality. So that's the reality of this sexual immorality. Now I want you to think of a second point, and it's this. The recklessness of sexual immorality. You see, where and how does this gross sexual perversion start? And here's the answer. It starts in the heart. It starts in the desire. It starts in the bias of the will. Because remember, the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then, of course, you see, it moves on from that desire and that lust in the heart and mind of the individual to that sin being tolerated by themselves and by a small company of others. It's usually conducted in secret in the closet, and for a long time you're well aware that this sin was never talked about, certainly not openly. It was done in secret. It was hidden. It was covered up. Of course, the Bible says, but whoso covereth the sin shall not prosper, but whoso forsaketh and confesseth them shall find mercy. But then there's a moving on from this inordinate desire that's burning in the heart to, to um, the sin being tolerated, and then this sin then becomes an acceptable form of behavior. And isn't this is where we're at at the day? The media is pushing it. The entertainment industry is pushing it. You hardly watch an ad on TV. You've got popular magazines and papers all carrying ads and, and exploiting this and desensitizing us to this. Is there not loads of sensuality and sexual perversion almost to the point where it's blatant and in your face? And then it moves on from an acceptable form of behavior to a form of a contagious lifestyle. If we go back to Sodom and what we read there in Genesis chapter 19, we uh, read in verse 4, but before they lay down, that was the two visitors, the men of the city, think of the words, even the men of Sodom compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. Don't miss that. The upper class, the middle class, the working class, men and boys. You see, it, it's contagious. And, and, and this is one of the, the ways it begins to manifest itself. And then it moves on from the desire in the heart and in the mind to this being tolerated by the individual and the close few friends till it becomes an acceptable form of behavior that people want to push. And then it becomes a contagious lifestyle to the very point where it becomes a militant propagation of such a lifestyle. In other words, there's an attempt to impose the lifestyle on all others within society. And usually, as is in the case of Sodom and the men there, 
individuals become very militant in that propagation. And if you agree and accept the alternative lifestyle, you're tolerated. But you tell them it's a sin. You tell them it's wrong. You tell them it's under the judgment of God. You tell them, like, not do not so wickedly. And you'll be despised and you'll be hated and you'll be vehemently denounced and vehemently treated. And I put it to you tonight. Is this not the troubling sin of our nation? What is the troubling sins of our nation? I put it to you, there's a number. We could talk this evening of the sin of fornication. That's carnal knowledge of each other outside of marriage. It's wrong, sinful. It's a serious sin. The Bible urges us to flee fornication. I say to you young people, keep yourself pure. Keep the marriage bed undefiled. And then add it to that, then we've got the sin of adultery. And that takes us to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Could I point out tonight something very important, and I want you to listen very carefully. Think of the Ten Commandments. You see, the Ten Commandments are not just ten narrow rules. That's how people interpret them. Now, they're to be interpreted literally. Don't get me wrong. But there are ten broad categories. And the seventh commandment has a broad category of all kinds of sexual immorality. Every kind of sexual infidelity and perversion is included in that commandment. And you see, in the commandment, there's not only the range of things that are forbidden... But there's an infinite range of things that are positive commands that are implied and inferred. And in the seventh commandment, you've got the actual literal sin forbidden, thou shalt not commit adultery. But there's more. As I've said, it's broad enough to include all kinds of sexual infidelity and immorality and perversion. You see, all the commandments to be understood literally. But they mean so much more. In fact, they compass the entire revelation of Scripture. I have with me here the Westminster Larger Catechism. It asks the question, which is the seventh commandment? And it says, the seventh commandment is, thou shalt not commit adultery. It asks this in 139. What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? Listen to me carefully. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment beside the neglect of duties required, and I didn't read them, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lust, all unclean imaginations, thought, purposes, and affections, all corrupt their filthy communication, or listening thereunto, wanton looks, imprudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibited of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of brothels and resorting to them, entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands at one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttonous, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness either in themselves or others. That's all encompassed in that one commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So you see how broad this is. We could think about incest and rape and polygamy. 
We could add into that the sin of homosexuality in the proper name of sodomy. Now, now think of this. And I haven't delved into it in any depth this evening, deliberately, because I'm sensitive to you who are listening. The recklessness of this sin and its cry of illicit immoral behavior comes into the ears of Jehovah. And his holy, righteous soul is stirred and moved. So much so that it's worthy of a response. And there was a response. Whenever we read Genesis 19, verse 24. You see, this sin so provokes the holy nature of God that he had to come and see it for himself. And out of the, this way that he acted, he could not ignore the sin. The sin has always been. Sexual sins have always been in times past. But what are we witnessing in our day? We're witnessing an explosion of it. Let me explain. 50 years ago, 40 years ago, if two young people in a church community or outside of that church community were found to be sleeping together, unmarried, that would be a big stigma. There would be an uproar. And I'm talking 50 years ago. And if they started to live together as husband and wife, well, they'd be shunned in the community. That, that again would be a stigma. But it's no longer a stigma. It's widely accepted. We could add into that there case of adultery. I discovered that in America... Some years back, there was a website called Ashley Madison. The slogan was, life is so short, have an affair. It was an anonymous social network for people seeking to commit adultery. It was hacked. The names and addresses were released. Do you know how many people was on it? 30 million people. Prominent names. And it's alleged by a Southern Baptist pastor that has supposedly 400 American pastors' names were on that. You see, adultery is also a very grievous, serious sin in the eyes of God. That's why he says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, in the eyes of men, we're told that, well, marriage is out of date. Many advocate an open marriage. It's called swingers. Marriage in name an open adulterous relationship? Has there not been an explosion of pornographic literature in our day? The advent of the internet has helped men's and girls' magazines. It's big business. Using websites, young girls, half-naked, naked bodies, offering themselves for men and women to see at a price. And they're raking in millions. And they think it's great. But they're heaping to themselves loads of guilt in the process because there's still a stigma in the human heart because they know it's wrong and their conscience tells them it's wrong. It's the same with adultery and it's the same with this other. Also, we could add into this here the homosexual, lesbian, bisexual lifestyle. We deplore that our national government has legalized what they call um, same-sex marriage I want to tell you it's not a marriage in the eyes of God marriage in the eyes of God is instituted by him is between one man and one woman 
And isn't it so grieving today that certain churches have ordained practicing homosexuals to the church? I want to tell you this is wrong. If we were to go tonight to places like San Francisco and go to New Orleans and the French Quarter, they tell me that you would see at night public acts of lewdness in front of your eyes that would make the hair stand on the back of your head and you'd be running for home. You think of what happened in the French Quarter in New Orleans, that um, Storm Katrina. Where did it hit? The French Quarter. And that's the very center of these public acts of lewdness. And did it stop their lifestyle? Did it make them repent and return to God? They absolutely not. They, they went on the harder. We could add into this here the pride marches in the United Kingdom. And even in our capital city of Belfast. Where that's openly displayed in a very fragrant, blatant manner. And then I have to add this, and this is going to rattle some, and you'll forgive me, but I'm going to say it. I'm the Secretary of the Government and Morals Committee, and we have been dealing with this here. I have to tell you tonight that our brother, Edwin Putz, who's a professing Christian and an office bearer in one of our churches, he gave voice recently to what I believe was a very unbiblical, unwise declaration. He was asked in the Stephen Nolan program if gay people are born that way. And he answered yes. Probably born that way and can't be cured. I want to tell you a homosexual lifestyle is a sinful lifestyle. And they're not born this way. Yes, they're born in sin and shaping in iniquity. That's what the Bible teaches. The wicked go astray as soon as they be born. Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. But there's no evidence to support that individual people are born with what we'd call simply for the young people a gay gene. This is a, a, an abominable denial of what the Bible teaches. I want to tell you this sin cries out to God. It cries out to God for judgment. You know, such judgment, if we think about the retribution thirdly, and our time is gone of this sexual infidelity, this judgment's already seen. Turn over there quickly to the book of Romans. Just give me five minutes. Romans chapter one. Look with me at this passage of scripture. Here's something that's very, very important. In Romans chapter one, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the righteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You see... There's a connection between the denial of God as creator and maker and the embracing of all kinds and all forms of uh, sexual immorality, including uh, the sin of homosexuality. According to Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is already revealed from heaven. 
In other words, God has given them up to the perverseness of this lifestyle. Why? Because God has revealed himself. He manifests himself in nature. These individuals know there is a God. They know something of his eternal power and Godhead. Uh, they all know this. It's not a problem of information. It's a problem of rebellion. It's a problem in their heart. Sinful men deliberately suppressing the truth in themselves. They see it and know there is a God. They do not want him. They do not want to know him. And as a result, the Lord lifts his restraining hand and gives them up to vile affections. And that's exactly what Paul is teaching here. If we think of the context, verse 21, verse 22, verse 23, verse 24. In light of the rejection of God as creator and maker, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own heart, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly. And receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was made. And in this retribution of this sexual infidelity, there's two forms of judgment. There's a temporal judgment. When the Lord gives them up to vile affections. When the Lord gives them up to uncleanness, that in itself is a form of judgment. And the land is defiled and affected. And then, of course, the land cries out to God. And, and you even think of the, the AIDS academic. And we have to ask tonight, how long before God acts? And then, of course, there's a, a, an, an eternal judgment because the, the, the Bible tells us there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it says this in verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. This wrath has already been revealed in that they're given up to this vile affection. And this wrath is only temporal. But there's a coming day of eternal judgment. And Jesus said, if you die in your sins where I am, there you cannot be. Let me finish. You've been very patient. We've thought of the reality. We've thought of the recklessness. We've thought of the retribution. But think about the remedy. What's the remedy for this sexual infidelity? What did Abraham do? He gave himself to prayer. He hears of Jehovah saying about this cry that's come to his ears that he's going to destroy Sodom and he prays for it. He starts with 50 righteous and he comes down to 10. He has such a love for the Lord's people. He's thinking of the godly remnant in these places. And he goes right down to the wee church of 10 members and he prays, Lord, will you spare them for 10? Here's an example of loving intercession. The psalmist said, but I gave myself to prayer. And what does the church of Jesus Christ need to do? It needs to give itself to prayer. To pray for the godly remnant that they might be strengthened in our day and in our generation. That the Lord might spare the land from, from terrible judgment. See, he's thinking of people. He's thinking of the peace of the church. 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2. He's praying for the work of God and the furtherance of the gospel. 
He wants the church and Jesus Christ to be unhindered by calamity, warfare, divine judgment, by, by famine, by, by disease. And Lot was spared. Even though he lost his home and lost a family member. Abraham's prayer in a sense was answered. Even though God didn't spare the city, God remembered Lot for Abraham's sake, Genesis 19, verse 29. We should also pray, not only for the people, but we should pray with passion. Not, not that the sin might abound, but that God's name will be hallowed, that God's will will be done, and that God who is merciful would display that mercy. You see, I believe that the church of Jesus Christ needs to be roused from her lethargy. And the church of Jesus Christ needs to recognize where we're at. Because what's the answer? The only answer is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and his person and work. And can we not cry to our God to spare and to have mercy and to be pitiful? And, and, and some of these people to be gloriously saved? I preached another message, Hope for Homosexuals, and it was based in this, and such were some of you. 1 Corinthians 11, 6 verse 11, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of our God. Our remedy is in Christ, because Jesus Christ is the answer. And we need to give ourselves to prayer. We need to think of people and be sensitive to people and where they're at. And even those who are struggling with these particular sins, let's not condemn them. Let's not point the finger and say, aha, remember there's three fingers pointing back at us. Let's lovingly go to our God and pray. Let's speak the truth to them in love. Let's never seek to hurt or harm any individual in the sense that we would want them damned. Who did Abraham pray to? The judge of all the earth. And he knew that the judge of all the earth would do right. And he put himself in his hands. Let's give ourselves to prayer. Let's pray passionately for feeling. And let's pray with the, the peace of the church in our mind. And let's have this hope that some of these individuals will repent of their sin. Get right with God. And live a life of a new creature to the glory of our God. I commend this message to you, difficult as it has been for me to preach, difficult as it has been for you to listen to. But I pray that the Lord will bless these few thoughts as we think about the sins of our nation at this time.